Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Amen. It is wonderful to be back with Redeemer Lincoln Square. As Graham said, my name is Jay Harvey. I'm a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, That's fun, and I'm also the executive director, and that's something that I do. Um, uh, It was a joy uh, this past week, actually, at an open house. We had a number of folks from Lincoln Square uh, at an open house for the seminary. That's not an uncommon occurrence. And uh, so if our enrollment goes down, we know it's a reflection of this sermon this morning. Um, Now, uh, Michael Keller is a good friend of mine. I love this congregation. If you're a guest here, I'd like you to know that you've come to a warm and generous place. That's how I think of Redeemer at Lincoln Square. Uh, The generosity of this congregation is something that I've experienced, that our students experience. Uh, You've made a place for those to grow in the faith here and rise up in leadership. We're so grateful for that. And the generosity of this congregation uh, rings throughout the city in many ways. Now, Michael's a good friend of mine, so when he asks me to to preach, I always say yes before I think about what I've done. And um, I realize he asked me to preach on rest um, in New York City, uh, which is a good time for a pastor to go out of town. (laughs) And all the pastors are out of town now. I'm the only one here who's a pastor, I think, at least. uh, (laughs) uh, So, but it's a joy to be here. This this text was challenging for me. I'm not someone, if you don't know me, if you were to meet my friends, the first word that would come out of their mouth about me would not be something like chill. Um, I'm not someone that you'd be directed to if you really want to be calm. Fun, engaging, I hope, most of the time. Certainly uh, less energy than I used to have at 49 years old now, um, but still some energy. But rest is a challenge for me. I was deeply confronted by this text. It was like, oh snap, uh, what am I going to say about this? It feels far from me, this text of, of rest. And then I got into a dental chair on Friday and experienced two stressful things right off the bat that I think actually make for a good, in, good introduction to the challenge of thinking about rest. I sit in with the hygienist, and she is the first person to ask me. I told her, you're the first person to ask, and she thought it was a compliment, but it was not. She said, what are you doing over the summer? What are you doing over the summer? And I have uh, three children. I'm like, this is stressful to me. I have no plans over the summer yet. 
what am I supposed to say? I've got a villa in Monte Carlo. What do you want me to say right now? I don't know what I'm doing over the summer. Like, what are you doing over the summer? Why are you asking me that question? That's what I'm thinking. Then she turns around and she goes, gets into the exam, and she steps back and she says, has anyone ever told you you might need a mouth guard? And I said, no. No one's ever told me I might need a mouth guard. I said, is this a new thing? It must have been happening for a while. You must have been grinding your teeth for a while. Nobody's told me that. I said, well, it didn't just come up overnight. You know, so I'm like, okay, so what's wrong? So, well, you're not, you must not be sleeping as well. You know, you're grinding your teeth at night. I'm thinking, well, how stressful is this? But I think this illustration uh, brings to bear how elusive rest is to us. It is elusive, isn't it? It's intuitive that we need rest. Um, like all the animal kingdom, we rest. We are in the middle range of rest. Koalas rest like 22 hours a day. Maybe you do that on some weekends if you can. Um, giraffes, like five hours. Um, we're like in the middle in terms of the animal kingdom uh, of what we need in rest. But rest is in one way intuitive that we need it. Um, it's elusive uh, in, in two ways. One, sometimes physical rest can be quite elusive for us, um, especially in a place like New York City. Uh, Frank Sinatra uh, said this in the famous song, New York, New York. You might remember this lyric. You would shoot me if I tried to sing it so I won't. I'll just read it to you. I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps and find I'm a number one, top of the list, king of the hill, and number one in a city that never sleeps. And I was in a meeting with some pastors. Whoa, that was good. Okay. I was in a meeting with um, a gathering of pastors recently. I know you might resonate with this as well. And we were going around saying what we do. And one of the guys says, I have four jobs in New York City. I have one job for each kid, right? Um, you either have many jobs in New York City or you have one job that you invest many hours in. It's one of the two, right? Very few people just do one thing and kind of easy do it. Easy does it with one thing. It is a wonderful thing about New York that it is a place of collaboration, cultivation, creation, innovation. That is all wonderful and to be celebrated. But just as our text suggests, with that work, there must be rest lest that work overcome us, and that is elusive to us. But even if we find physical rest, sometimes um, an inner rest is elusive to us as well. So, um, like Frank Sinatra, another great philosopher, uh, Blaise Pascal, says this, and his pen says, men seek rest in a struggle against difficulties, and when they have conquered these, rest becomes insufferable. That is, we strive to go on, or on the other hand, you might say, I don't know if this is what Pascal meant, that we actually gain that physical rest. In that stillness, in that loss of activity, we can become overwhelmed with an inner restlessness. Indeed, some of us are physically restless intentionally to avoid the inner restlessness, the anxiety, the, the, the fear, the pains that rise up when we are still. So rest is elusive to us. I, I emphasize how elusive rest is because when we think about this text today and this sermon title suggests this, we're thinking about the beginning of rest and what that means that this is an ideal that we're thinking about. Whenever you consider anything that's ideal, it could either inspire you or discourage you. Like ideal weight. Yeah. Um, so rest is an ideal could inspire, but it can also discourage us. Uh, we are looking at an ideal. 
And the bad news is that, as we said, rest is elusive. And the ideal that we see at this point in the history of the world created by God has been deeply corrupted. It is an ideal that has been deeply corrupted. At the personal level, some of us don't yet know that we need this rest. One of the things we're going to see in this particular text is that we are to rest as God rests, but some of us haven't learned that yet. We resist our finitude, and because we resist our finitude, we drive ourselves and others very, very hard. We embed restlessness into our lives. We embed restlessness into the structures that we build because we do not understand yet that we are finite, that we are in the image of God, but we are not God. And so we have a problem of finitude with our rest. And then there is the problem of our fallenness. This rebellion against God, a refusal to embrace that we are created in his image, but we are not him. This is a deep-seated rebellion that creates an alienation from God, an alienation from one another. And so in addition to this problem of finitude, we also have the problem of fallenness. We're all called to do great things within our own sphere. What you're called to do is different than what your neighbor's called to do and what I'm called to do. But God calls you to do great things within your own sphere. But if you can't recognize your finitude and you can't address your fallenness, these two problems of rest will persist and persist and persist. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. But the good news is this. The good news is the pattern that we see of rest here is a pattern that is offered to us. So if the problem of rest is this problem of our finitude and the problem of our fallenness, the good news is actually beginning for us in this pattern. There is a pattern here. Verse 1, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. Now what the author is saying is that God has finished his work of creation and by host, what he means is the inhabitants. So as this narrative unfolds, you have things of the water for the seas. Uh, you have animals and then human beings created to govern the land. Those are the hosts of the land. God is now finished with this work. And so in verse 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God but verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This word work occurs three times in three verses. It is there 
right after a section of Scripture that says that God made human beings in his image to work in the earth and to fill it, it is there to say, if you're in my image, you are to follow the pattern of my own work. It's not that God has quit working here. Jesus makes that clear in John 5, 17, and it has to be intuitive to us as well. It's not as though God abandoned the universe or God abandoned the earth or his care for the earth or anything like that. No, what's meant here is that, as Herman Bobbink, the great Dutch theologian, said, God's workaday work, God's workaday week, rather, in Genesis 1 was six days. And on the seventh day, he ceased from that work. And in Exodus 31, we read that God not only ceased from this work, but he was refreshed. He was refreshed. We struggle to know how God could be refreshed after a work of creation. But the point is, he steps back, he delights in his creation. He rejoices in what has been done. And he blesses this seventh day. This is the only inanimate object that receives a blessing in the creation account. What does it mean that God blesses this seventh day? It means he sets his favor upon it. He makes it a special day. A day where we can expect blessing back from him in some way. He makes it holy. That means he sets it apart for special attention. He blesses this day. He makes it holy. And in our tradition, the Reformed faith, we believe that God embedded this day in the deep structures of reality. Now, there are others in the Christian tradition which we respect, and this may be you, and there are even those in the Reformed tradition who would point out, perhaps, perhaps what we need is one day in seven, and your day may not fall on the Lord's Day or Sunday. Or, even if you think there is one appointed day in seven that falls on the Lord's Day or Sunday that we should all try to observe. If you can't observe that for some reason, you should have another day that you observe. We're not going to get into that. I respect all of those views, and, and everything that I say here would fit into those as well. But the, the idea of that God has embedded this one day in seven pattern into reality is clearly here for us in the text. And though we corrupt this pattern ourselves— and though we live among a people where it is deeply corrupted, this day remains embedded for us. It is like a lighthouse on a shore of rest that calls for us. And God's goodness shines forth in this text. And here's where um, a comparison to other ancient literature can be helpful. It's not essential, but this particular text is made uh, clearer to us when we understand that this stands quite apart from other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, particularly in this way. In standard ancient Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern creation mythology, uh, the gods create human beings to do menial work so they don't have to. As one commentator said, gods create human beings to be lackeys for gods. In this text, God creates Adam and Eve, gives them an abundant supply of food to do their work, and then appoints one day of rest where they will not work but will commune with him. The goodness of God shines through in this for us. And this aspect of God's character, that he is a God who intends rest— and communion 
with his people. It's something that God wants us to take, up, take hold of. One of the reasons that we know that is this sign of Sabbath becomes a covenant sign for the nation of Israel. And that's the nation of Israel. It's not our nation today. But as God is unfolding his plan of salvation for all people, there's this season where the nation of Israel is to be this exemplary nation in certain ways. And one of them was to be, they were to observe this one day and seven rest as a national affair with the utmost seriousness. And when we read this back, you, some of us may think of blue laws and things like that. I grew up in the southeastern United States where they had these things called blue laws. Blue laws were, I don't know why they called them blue laws. Maybe they made people blue. I don't know. Um, but you couldn't buy anything on Sunday. My daughter has a friend in Italy, just graduated from high school, and apparently things are shut down on Sunday as well. Now, in our tradition, we recognize you have to have things open on Sunday. You know, hospitals, uh, restaurants, places of lodging, and so on. So this is not about that. But <clears throat> what I'm saying is when we think about rest in Western culture, in our own history, maybe in your personal history, maybe even in context where this feels restrictive, it feels more legal, it feels less relational. But in the context of the ancient world, this is glorious. This is liberating. This is redemptive. Wait a minute. One mandatory day of vacation per week? One, a society in which every one of us are image bearers of God, not just the king? This is to be institutionalized? This is going to be how our God is known? As the God of rest. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And this ideal can be inspiring to us. And let me consider just two things before we can move on from this particular point, and that is, with regard to finitude, consider this. As this creation account is unfolding, there is a pattern. And it's not the pattern that we observe. I don't know how you think about your day, but I, th- I think about my day with what happened in the morning, and I move to what happened in the evening. Is that how you think about your day? Some people nodding. Unless you're, my mother was a career night nurse in the ICU. She probably had that reversed, but, you know, there are always exceptions. In this text, there's a different pattern. It's evening and it's morning the first day. It's evening and it's morning the second day. It's evening and it's morning the third day, and so on. And what do we take from that? Well, with regard to your finitude and the wonderful things that really and truly you have been called to do. We, we, as we think about rest, we cannot ever devalue work. It is, it is beautiful what you've been called to do. But one of the things the creation account should teach us, and God's invitation to rest should teach us, is when you lay down your head on a pillow at night, the day is starting as you are sleeping, and God's going to work on your behalf. God is going to work on your behalf. God is continuing and building and architecting and advancing the things that he's called you to do even while you sleep. It is happening. His plan is unfolding. Yes, it's unfolding in the midst of deep crisis and fallenness all around us, but the point is you can really and truly lay your head down on the pillow and know that for you, it's time to sleep, but for God, it's time to work. And by the time you wake up, he's already been working. And we think about our fallenness. This rest that God takes, 
this rest that God takes on this seventh day. He is gracious to offer it to us. Not because we deserve it. No, in our fallenness and in our rebellion, in our refusal to address our own finitude, we, all, we so often want to take the place of God. And we do destructive things to his honor, to ourselves, and to others. But God is such a God of grace. The God who works while you sleep is a God who also offers you salvation by his work in the midst of your fallenness. And we see that emerging from this pattern of rest. And that leads us to the person of rest. There's a person of rest. And this is why the ideal of God's rest can inspire us and not discourage us or overwhelm us. Because it is not distant for us that we can never attain to it. As Scripture unfolds, what we see is that as God is creating here, the writer of the Hebrews will say that this is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in three persons creating here. And the Scriptures will say that as this creation is taking place, Father, Son, and Spirit are here. And that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That the Son upholds the universe by the words of his power. But here in this text, what we find in subsequent pages of Scripture is Jesus Christ as the agent of creation. It is Jesus Christ, the one through whom heaven and earth was made. The one through whom the host that inhabit everything were made. The one through whom it is declared, this day is blessed and this day is holy. And the one who never stops working but upholds all things by the word of his power as you go to sleep at night is Jesus Christ. And this very mighty Jesus Christ is a beacon of hope for you in the abuse of your finitude and in your fallenness. Because the same Jesus Christ that created is the Jesus Christ that redeemed. And having declared this day blessed and holy, but then observed his people not fit to enter into it, the Son takes on a true body and a reasonable soul and becomes a Savior. It becomes a Savior. To live a perfect life, to model this perfect rest, he, as Savior of the world and the second person of the Trinity, models dependence upon his own Father as an incarnate human being. He submits perfectly for the will, to the will of his Father for our salvation. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews continues on. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins... Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity knows, the plan cannot be accomplished if my people cannot rest. And they cannot enter into this rest if they are alienated from me. Therefore, he takes it upon himself to make purification for you and me. And that's why Jesus can say in his own earthly ministry these beautiful words. He says, come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I don't know where you find yourself today. Where in your pursuits of creating and innovating and pursuing the things that God has for you, you feel that you may have, you find now that you have gone astray. But know this, that Jesus addresses you really and truly right here spiritually in this room. And he invites you either for the first time or once again to be assured that he loves you and that he offers you rest that he came to purchase it for you. That he wants you to bask in this experience of rest with him and with his Father, with the people of God as a signpost while we go through this world like whack-a-moles, knocking down the restlessness and the rebellion and the problems and the challenges, some of which we talked about today. We do so on the way to a destination that is going to be perfectly restful. Where rest and work will come together in just the right way. Where there will be no more crying, no more lamenting, no more tears, no more shame, no more inward anxiety, no more corruption. This is the rest of Jesus Christ that is offered to us today. And Jesus didn't just die to pay the penalty for our sins, but he rose, and it's the power of his resurrection that grants us life-giving rest, and it's the power of Jesus' resurrection that allows your vocation to flourish even while you rest. And so we come with a sign. And the genius of God. We believe there are only two signs in our tradition that he instituted for the church. Baptism and Lord's Supper. These two simple signs that can be taken to every tribe, tongue, and nation, that can be celebrated in a cathedral or a hall for, or, or a society of ethical culture hall or a living room. These two simple signs that bear witness to these two powerful truths. I conclude with this, that just as there is a problem with rest, there is a pattern of rest. There is a person for rest. So we're called to be a people of rest. And as a people of rest, that message is embodied in this sign. As a people, as a body, we gather together, especially on this Lord's Day, to be reminded of our finitude and assured that we are not God and we don't need to be, so we give him the praise that is due him. To be renewed in our confidence that he has loved us in our fallenness and has obtained an entrance into this rest that used to be foreign to us. And to hold forth this great future hope. We're a people of rest that gathers to encourage one another in this rest. We're a people of rest who goes out from this place 
And to the degree that we have influence and ability, our little sphere of life is, that's, what, that's all you're responsible for is your little sphere of life. Where can you can advance rest? Either this spiritual rest or this creational rest. We are a people of rest. Part of being a people who brings the gospel to the city is embodying and proclaiming and making possible this rest for others. Such is the glory of Christ and such is our joy to gather together as a people seeking and abiding in rest until his return. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for revealing to us what you have about rest. Lord, I pray for those here who may be especially, especially weary, that their eyes would behold the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.